0: Well, whether you realize it or not, there is uh, no more appropriate response as those who, whose lives have been transformed by the gospel than to do what we just did, which is to sing about the gospel and sing the gospel and sing God's praises, the, the God of the gospel. And uh, we're going to see uh, that example uh, in the Apostle Paul this morning as we come to one of the most uh, monumental texts in the book of Romans. I'm referring to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Romans chapter 11. And I'm gonna be reading, starting in verse 33. Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches forever, amen. God, we come to this climactic section of this letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of your spirit, and it just has the sense that we are treading on holy ground here, that this is beyond us, beyond our comprehension this makes us feel so finite in comparison to how infinite you are. But Father, I pray that you would condescend to us once again this morning and graciously open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, that we would appreciate Not just the words of Paul here, but the emotion of Paul as he declared your glory that was due you because of the gospel. And I pray that our response today to this text and to all that we've been learning from this great epistle would well up within us. And Father, burst forth in appropriate praise and wonder and awe in your presence, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure most of you are familiar, if not all of you, with the phrase, soli deo gloria, three Latin words, soli, alone, deo, God, gloria, "glory," glory, glory to God alone, these three Latin words are the essence of what is known as Reformed theology. And uh, simply defined, Reformed theology is the biblical truths related to the gospel that were rediscovered or revived during the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s and 1600s. And while the Reformers didn't agree on everything, they didn't agree on church government, how a church should be Uh, organized and governed. They didn't believe uh, all the same about baptism or the Lord's Supper or the end times. They did all agree on the true nature of the gospel. And they summarized their convictions about the gospel using five Latin phrases to distinguish themselves from what the Roman Catholic Church in their day taught about how a person is saved. And these five statements express the fundamental grievances that they had against the heretical soteriology of the church. And if you're not familiar with that phrase, soteriology, it's simply the doctrine of salvation. We know these five statements as the five solas, which were the driving force behind the Reformation. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christus. Christ alone, and then soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. This was the reformer's way of affirming that according to the scriptures, and scripture alone, that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. The most well-known reformer, was a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther, who, despite his wrong views of the Jews, which we mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, he was rock solid in regards to his doctrine of salvation. He had spent um, his early years, as I'm sure uh, you you know the story, but he was uh, living in a monastery as a young man praying and fasting and whipping himself, literally whipping himself, constantly going to confession um, to the priest, but never finding rest for his tormented soul, until he began reading and teaching through the book of Romans to a group of students at the University of Wittenberg, Germany, and when he arrived at the theme verse in chapter 1, verse 17, which reads, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And the light switch was turned on. His eyes were opened to see that a person is not saved by good works like he had been taught, by the church in that day, but solely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it was this stunning revelation in the book of Romans that led to his conversion and sparked the greatest revival in the history of the church, the Protestant Reformation. And so I say all that so you understand that the catalyst of the Reformation was this book that we've been studying for the last, I don't know how many years now couple years, not as long as you all thought it would be, right? But, but this is it. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised by this, though, when you consider the fact that Romans, as we've been learning, is the clearest, most comprehensive explanation of God's glorious gospel found anywhere in the Scriptures. This was Paul's magnum opus. This was a tour de force, if you will, that serves as the doctrinal foundation for the rest of the New Testament and yet it actually was nothing more than a missionary support letter that Paul sent to the churches in Rome to introduce himself but more importantly to give a summary of his message in the hope that they would partner with him in his future evangelistic endeavors in Spain through their prayers and material resources you see i am coming to see you guys but i'm only going to stay there a little while cuz i ultimately want to get to spain because I want to take to the gospel to the remotest part of the earth, which was was Spain at the time. Well, if you remember from our early days in our study, we said that this letter can be divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 are the gospel explained, and chapters 12 through 16 is the gospel applied. And so this is very common for Paul's letters. He would Typically begin with doctrinal instruction, and then he would follow that up by giving the practical implications of that instruction. In other words, what we believe should affect the way we live. Today, we are finishing finishing up the doctrinal section of Romans, and we find Paul here as he reflected on God's amazing plan of salvation that he'd been, he'd been expounding for uh, the last 11 chapters, he bursts forth in what is perhaps the most uplifting doxology in the New Testament. A doxology is an expression of praise, typically in the form of a short song or hymn. Doxa means praise or, or honor or glory. Logia uh, is, is, uh, means word or utterance or expression, Probably the most well-known example of a doxology is the classic hymn written back in 1674 by Thomas Ken. He was a bishop in the Church of England. It's still sung in worship services around the world to this day. You may have sung this growing up like I did in church. You remember this? I don't think I can sing it. Should I try? I'll give it a try. You guys got to help me though, if I can start it on the right note, okay? My wife got all the musical talent, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures here below, praise him above ye heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, sorry, that was a little high, but you got the point, right, how many of you guys sang that growing up in church, yeah, look at that, okay, most of you are familiar with that, you're just glad I wasn't standing next to you when you were singing it, right, um, but as beautiful and as sentimental as the doxology may be, it pales in comparison to this outburst of praise that erupted from Paul's heart in these four remaining verses of Romans 11. Verses 33 through 36 serve as the climactic conclusion of all that he's written so far about the gospel, the good, God's good news of salvation. And... If you remember from last week, Paul uh, was, in a sense, being very climactic here. In verse 32, he's talking about the mercy of God. In verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy, for God has shut up all in disobedience, that he may show mercy to all. And if you're familiar with what comes next in the book of Romans, look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the, what? Mercies of God. Present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul could have very easily transitioned from verse 32 to chapter 12, verse 1, and connected that mercy theme, right? It's there. Can't miss it. But he was apparently so overwhelmed by the reality and the profundity of God's mercy in the gospel that he couldn't help but respond with an explosion of worship. After everything he'd been writing about, how the whole world is guilty before God and deserving nothing but His wrath, but how God in His great love and grace provided a way for sinners to be made right with Him, not by keeping the law but by placing their faith alone in the death of his sinless son, Jesus, who satisfied God's wrath on the cross and how he imputes or transfers our sin to Christ and transfers and imputes his righteousness to us and frees us not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin and gives us his spirit to help us mortify sin in our lives and give us the assurance that we are his children and that nothing can ever separate us from his love and how all this is undeserved and unearned by us but based solely on God's sovereign grace in choosing us in eternity past and not just us, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in his ultimate mysterious plan to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one body. Paul's mind was blown. His heart was ablaze, and the most natural, the most appropriate response was to launch into praise, specifically exalting the unfathomable and unexplainable nature of God. Because if you haven't figured it out yet, there's a lot of things here in the book of Romans that are hard to understand. And that'll be the first one to admit, I don't fully understand some of the things that we've been talking about, especially in the last three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. I mean, those are deep chapters. I mean, you're, you're plumbing the depths of, of God's character. And so I think this was Paul's way of admitting that there was so much that even he didn't fully understand. And that he couldn't clearly explain. As hard as he was trying to make this as clear and and simple and as comprehensive as possible, he he was was just scratching the surface. Things like the doctrine of election. Why God shows mercy to some and and hardens others. By the way, what is his timetable in all this? But I think most of all, what we have the hardest time comprehending, or at least should have the hardest time comprehending, is why God chose to save us and not others that we know and love. That, that should be the one thing that we've been left scratching our head. Why me? Why, why us? And so we stand here today with Paul like mountain climbers. Who have reached the summit of Mount Everest, and all we can do is just stand in awe of God's beauty and majesty and shout out to Him in praise. I'm a little embarrassed to tell you this, but when I was a teenager, and I grew up in the New England area, and so there was lots of hiking there in the Adirondack Mountains, and I always enjoyed a good hike and Climbing to the top of some mountain, and so typically whenever I would get to the top of this mountain and look out on the, the beauty of God's creation, I would shout at the top of my lungs, praise God, and listen to it echo through the valley. That's essentially what Paul was doing here. He was praising the God of the gospel, and we have the privilege of entering into his adoration and admiration of God this morning, and just a simple way to to, to look at these four verses. And I I I I tried to think of a, a hundred and one different ways that they could be broken down and outlined and presented to you in a in a memorable way. And 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 but one thing I I noticed uh, as I just observed this text was it seems that verses. 33 and 34 go together, that that he makes, first of all, an exclamation. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's just an exclamation, exclamation. Like, wow. He's amazed. He's lost in wonder. And then he backs up that exclamation with a question, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? So that question in verse 34 goes with verse 33, but then he asks a second question in verse 34, excuse me, verse 35, or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And he answers that question in the next verse with this declaration, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. Amen. So that's one way to see the logic, I guess, or the flow of Paul's thinking here. Verses 33 and 34 go together, an exclamation, exclamation and a question, and then a question, uh, verse 35 and uh, a declaration, verse 36. But for this morning, what I want us to, to focus on are two aspects of God. That are clearly revealed in his glorious gospel. This is what Paul was praising. Paul, first of all, in verses 33 and 34, he was praising the unfathomed wisdom of God. And then in verses 35 and 36, he was praising the unaided work of God. And again, both of these relate to the doctrine of salvation, what he has been explaining uh, in these first uh, 11 chapters. And so let's look first of all how Paul praised the unfathomed wisdom of God as it relates to the gospel. Verse 33, he says, "Oh. My wife said last week, "Hey, make sure you stop and talk about that oh for a little bit." <laughs> it's like a butt, you know, like uh, one of those butts in the Bible, and you're like, "But, right this massive Pregnant, but, what is going on there? It's a transition from this section to this section, and uh, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but then God made us alive in Christ. This, this oh, is just a pregnant statement, like, wow, I'm, I'm speechless. He says, oh, the, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he puts those things together, by the way, the the wisdom and knowledge of God, because they are inseparably linked. You can't have one without the other. Uh, The knowledge of God is the information that he has. And and by the way, he has all of it. That's why we call God omniscient, that he knows everything. There's, There's nothing that he does not know. But not only is he omniscient, but he's wise which means he has the ability, the ability to practically apply that information in the best possible way. So wisdom is applied omniscience. A. W. Tozer wrote a classic book on the attributes of God called The Knowledge of the Holy. And this is how he describes the wisdom of God. He said, "'Wisdom is the ability to devise perfect ends "'and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. "'It sees the end from the beginning "'so that there can be no need to guess or conjecture. "'Wisdom sees everything in focus, "'each in proper relationship to all, "'and is thus able to work toward predestined goals "'with flawless precision. "'All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom.'" first for his own glory and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. Well, we know God's wisdom is displayed in many ways, but the greatest demonstration of his wisdom is in the plan of salvation. And we see his wisdom connected to salvation throughout the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For since in the wisdom of God... The world, though through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That same context. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, in this great, um, uh, really worshipful uh, doxology here, but at the very beginning of the letter, Ephesians chapter 1, he's describing God's plan of salvation, and he says this in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And then in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 9, Paul was called by God to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places talking about the salvation of Jews and Gentiles together in this body called the church. A. W. Pink, who also wrote a classic book on the attributes of God, said said it this way, God is omniscient, he knows Everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future, his knowledge is perfect. One of my favorite Psalms that highlights the omniscience of God and also the omnipresence of God, by the way, it helps to know everything, right? It helps you know everything if you're omnipresent. They kind of go hand in hand, two sides of the same coin. How does God know everything? Because he's everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have closed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. So David simply says, hey, your, your knowledge is just beyond me. Your way, it's way above my pay grade. I can't, I can't even get there. It's next, like the like next level. Again, Pink says this about the wisdom of God in his Attributes of God book. He said, quote, the infinite knowledge of God should fill us with amazement, awe, and adoration. The whole of my life stood open to his view from the beginning. He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless, he fixed his heart upon me. Oh, how the realization of this should bow me in wonder and worship before him. He knew you before, right, back in eternity past. He knew exactly what you would be like and what you would do. He knew how sinful you would be. You know, he knows all all your faults and all your failures, and yet still, what, he set his affection upon you, and he sent his son to die for you. This should bow us on our knees on our faces in wonder and worship. I think it's interesting that Paul, Paul's praise here of the Lord was prompted by what he did know about him, but also what he didn't know about him. It's easy to praise God, I guess, if, you know, for the things we know about him. But have you ever thought about praising God for what you don't know about him? That's the of what he's doing. I praise you because there's just way too much about you I don't know. Typically we say, hey, worship is a response of all that we know to be true about God, and we, we worship him as a result of that. But this is like, hey, you know what, God? I don't know you. There, there's, there's, I, I know, uh, you know what I don't know about you is a lot greater than what I do know about you, and that makes me want to worship even more. So we need to praise God for what we can understand about him, but also what we can't understand about him. He goes on, notice how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. His judgments are what he thinks and what he decides. Uh, his ways are what God does. So what he thinks, what he decides is unsearchable. What he does is Unfathomable. God's judgments are unsearchable. They're, they're too deep for us to grasp. They're beyond our limited ability to comprehend. That word, they're unfathomable, says God's ways are unfathomable. Literally, that means incapable of being traced by footprints. Some of you may be are good trackers when, you, when it comes to hunting, right? And uh, you, you shoot the animal or you're looking for the animal maybe before you shoot them and you're, you're, you're tracking them, right? You're following their little footprints. And uh, some, some animals are easier than others, right? To follow uh, their footprints, follow their tracks. But guess what? God has no footprints. He leaves no tracks. And so it's impossible to track God. The psalmist says it this way, Psalm 77, 19, your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. You ever track somebody over a lake or a river? I mean, typically what happens, the, 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 the tracks stop at the edge of the river, the edge of the ocean, the edge of the Lake, and you're like, oh, you lost them, right? The point is, you, you, there's no footprints. You can't, nothing leaves footprints on water. And ultimately, it's a reference to God. He has no footprints. The imagery here, I think, is rich. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His and unfathomable his ways, hopefully the picture of the ocean, the depths of the ocean come to your mind as we're thinking about something to uh, compare to here. And those of you that maybe are into diving, scuba diving or deep sea diving, you know that you can only go down so far into the ocean before your body or your vessel, even if you're in a, 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 a vessel uh, some sub or something, reaches the breaking point because the pressure is it, just too much to bear, and so it, it is with the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge. There's only so much we can bear. There's only so much we can know about God, and the rest is, is a mystery that we're left to wonder about. They're, they're still wondering about what's like really down there, right? That's why they come up with movies every once in a while about what's really down in the deepest part of the ocean that we've never been to yet, and it's a mystery, so it makes for cool movies. Well, God is so deep, it, there's a lot left to the mystery of it. We just left to wonder about it. Isaiah 55:8 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So it doesn't matter if you go down to the depth of the sea or you go to the height of the heaven. You're not coming close to comprehending God. He is way beyond us. And so he follows up this exclamation with a question, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, which if you're not familiar with Isaiah 40, it's one of my favorite chapters in Uh, the Old Testament, where God is simply revealing how great He is. And uh, it's just a a beautiful revelation of how God is incomparable. Nothing compares to Him. And in uh, Isaiah 40, verse 12, "...who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand." And marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. He's talking about the bigness, the greatness of God. Puts everything just in the, like if it's in the palm of his hand. Verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. And the obvious answer is no one. Why? Because you can't teach God anything since he already knows everything. We're not God's counselors. <laughs> no one is in a position to give God advice or provide him with counsel since he already knows the wisest things to do. And besides, he always does what he pleases anyway. He doesn't have to answer to. Anyone, he doesn't have to consult us before he does anything. And yet at times we are really good at acting as God's consultants, aren't we? Especially in how regard and how and how he uh in regards to how he rules and runs our lives. We think we know better than God. We, We we think we know what's best for us, and so we ask him to do certain things and and to cause things to work out in a certain way, the way we want them to work out, the way we assume is it would be best for us. But when the situation doesn't work out the way we thought it should or expected it would, we're tempted to question the wisdom of God, which, by the way, comes out in our complaining. That's how you know, right? If you're questioning the wisdom of God. God, I don't know why you did that or why didn't you do that? And, and so we complain about the spouse that he gave us or the kids he gave us or the way he made our bodies or the job he's provided us or the home he's provided us or where we live or you fill in the blank. And when we complain about these things, we're, we're, we're insinuating that God made a mistake and asserting that we are wiser than, than he is and that we know how to run our lives better than he does. The truth of the matter is God knows best and we need to let him run our lives and our marriages and our families and our businesses and our health and, and when everything in our lives seems to be going wrong, we need to trust him that things are actually going perfectly as planned by a wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And I think what makes this so hard is because God moves in mysterious ways. Ways that don't make sense to us, that aren't clear to us. And seldom is it, is it obvious to us why our prayers go unanswered or our longings remain unfulfilled or something or someone precious is taken from us. God rarely explains why he does what he does. J.I. Packer, in his book on the attributes of God called Knowing God, classic book, I'm sure a number of you have read that, he said this, quote, we may be frankly bewildered at things that happen to us, but God knows exactly what he's doing and what he is after in his handling of our affairs. Always and in everything, he is wise. We shall see that hereafter, even where we never saw it here. In other words, you might have to wait to get to heaven to see it. Meanwhile, we ought not to hesitate to trust his wisdom even when he leaves us in the dark. Job's a good example of a guy that got left in the dark there for a little while, at least for the first uh, 37 chapters of uh, his book, and for 37 chapters, he wondered why he was suffering and He questioned God and his friends showed up and they offered their collective wisdom which really wasn't on point. And so finally, God shows up in a whirlwind and bombarded Job with a series of unanswerable questions that revealed his infinite wisdom. Like essentially, who are you, Job, to question me? And I love how the book ends. Job Chapter 42, verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I've declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, now, and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job repented of his attempt to consult or or serve as a consultant to God. In fact, he and his buddies, there was a group consultation going on, and he just submitted to the wisdom of God. And he realized that if God had enough wisdom to manage the boundaries of the sea and the the motions of the heavens and the the instincts of the animals, including the Leviathan, the most uh, biggest beast uh, known to man at the time, that he had more than enough wisdom to, to run his little life. And I think the lesson that we all can learn from the story of Job is that God owes us no explanation. He has every right to do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. Why? Because he's God. And we honor God when we confidently trust him that while there may be mysteries, there are never any mistakes. Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, said this, quote, if we are to honor God by trusting him, if we are to find peace for ourselves, we must come to the place where we can honestly say, God, I do not have to understand. I will just trust you. And that's a very appropriate thought as we conclude this first half of Romans or the first section of Romans, which has left us all asking questions. Anybody still have questions in their minds? Is it just me? Okay? There's a lot of questions still going around in my head, and it's okay to ask questions. But at some point, we just need to stop questioning God and demanding clear, logical answers. And simply believe and simply worship. One commentator said this about Paul's expression here. He said, This is an expression of a faith that trusts when it cannot understand, that loves when it cannot explain that reasons correctly that nothing but good can ultimately come from God to those who accept his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have faith to trust God even when you cannot understand? Do you love God even when you can't explain what he's up to? Do you have the confidence that no matter how bad it appears that Based on Romans 8.28, God works all things together for what? Good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Paul begins here by praising God for his unfathomable wisdom. But then he goes on and he praised God for his unaided work. Paul praised the unaided work of God. And again, he, this time he starts with the question, Verse 35, or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And there he's quoting Job. Job 41, in that whirlwind of questions and confrontation, that was one of the questions um, God asked Job. And the same way we can't give counsel to God because he knows everything already, we can't give anything to God since he already owns everything. So we're not God's counselors, we're not God's creditors. If we could give anything to God, that would make him indebted to us, which has never been the case and never will be the case. He he never has to repay anyone for anything. He's not obligated to us for anything. He owes you nothing. He owes me nothing. No one can say, well, all right, God, you owe me one. Can't say that. He is self existent. He's self sufficient. He's completely independent from us and requires no aid or assistance from us. And that's what Paul meant when he said, verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things. Who is not in those three phrases? You and me, we're not there. It's all God. For from Him and through Him and to Him is everything. He's the creator. He's uh, the agent. He's the goal. He's uh, the source of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the sum of all things. He's the beginning and the end of all things and everything in between. One commentator said it this way, God is the first cause, the effective cause, and the final cause of everything. Again, this is in itself inscrutable, hard to comprehend, and we have to be careful here because sometimes God is described to us as if he had some unmet needs or unfulfilled desires. You may have read this or heard this over the years, that God created us because he was lonely. And he had all this love that he wanted to share. Well, what we need to understand is that God's relationship with us is not necessary, but Voluntary. Again, Tozer and Pink address this, this subject uh, in their books. Tozer said this in The Knowledge of the Holy, quote, God's interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any incompleteness they can bring to him who is complete in himself. He did not bring his worlds into being to meet some unfulfilled need in himself. The word necessary is wholly foreign to God. Necessary is not in God's vocabulary. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether of God's free determination. And then Pink expands on this a bit. He says, there was a time, if time It could be called when God in the unity of his nature dwelt all alone. There was nothing, no one, but God. God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also would have been called into existence from all eternity. The creating of them, when he did, added nothing to God essentially. God was under no constraint, no obligation, no necessity to create that he chose to do so was purely a sovereign act on his part, caused by nothing outside himself, determined by nothing but his own mere good pleasure to manifest his glory. That's good theology right there. And that's what Paul said. So at the end of the day, to him be the glory forever, amen. Everything was designed by God and intended by God to bring Himself glory, especially those of us who He chose to save by His sovereign grace. He created us for His glory. And because He does it all in salvation, He deserves all the glory. Notice how Paul ends this letter in chapter 16 with similar words Romans 16:27 to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever This was typical of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then Peter emphasized this as well. Whoever speaks, this is 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever amen and then of course revelation we're going to be spending all eternity praising and worshiping God and his son Jesus revelation 5:12 worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. John Stott said it this way He says, It is the essence of worship to say, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That's the essence of worship. We don't come here on Sunday mornings and sing about ourselves. Oh, aren't we so great? Aren't we so wonderful? (laughs) That'd be weird. You need to go find another church if that's what you want to sing about because we're singing about how it's not about us. It's about God... And Stott goes on, he says, "'If we were responsible for our own salvation, "'either in whole or even in part, "'we would be justified in singing our own praises "'and blowing our own trumpet in heaven, "'but such a thing is inconceivable. "'God's redeemed people will spend eternity "'worshiping him.'" humbling themselves before Him in grateful adoration, ascribing their salvation to Him and to the Lamb and acknowledging that He alone is worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory. Why? Because our salvation is due entirely to His grace, His will, His initiative, His wisdom, and His power. And in the meantime, while we wait for that day when we can do that for all eternity, those of us who God has mercifully saved through the gospel should no longer live for ourselves, our own glory, but for his glory alone. We should do everything we do to bring honor and glory to God. First 1 Corinthians 10.32, one, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the, what? Glory of God. Our ultimate passion, our ultimate purpose in life should be to glorify God in everything that we say and everything that we do. You say, what does that look like practically? Well, that's what Paul will address in the remainder of this letter, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. So what's the takeaway for us today? I think it's very simple. Paul's response should be our response. This is the natural, only appropriate response to all that we have learned so far in Romans 1 through 11 is for us just to want to praise and thank God for our salvation. And when we truly come to grips with God's sovereign grace in salvation, it will lead us to praise him like never before. And I would submit to you this, that the vibrancy of our worship is directly proportionate to the depth of our understanding of the gospel. In other words, the more passionately we understand and appreciate the gospel, the more passionate we should sing. So I ask you, what would the person standing next to you during our singing time conclude about how well you understand the gospel, how much you appreciate the gospel. If you're just standing there kind of mumbling away, is that really a reflection? Is that proportionate to what you think about the gospel, how you feel about the gospel? Again, it was expounding these tremendous truths in the first 11 chapters that caused Paul to erupt in praise, and I love how Uh, Stott put it he said analysis and argument must give way to adoration there's been a lot of analysis here hasn't there there has been okay it's hurt my head there's a lot of analysis here there's a lot of argument here but it must give way to adoration theology leads to doxology you can't have one without the other and let me close with a quote from John Stott who seems to be the one commentator that I've quoted the most from in these first 11 chapters. I just find his commentary extremely helpful, extremely insightful. Listen to what he says here about this this connection between theology, Romans 1 through 11, and doxology verses 33 through 36. He says, theology and doxology doxology should never be separated. On the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology. It is not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who He is and what He has done. It was the tremendous truths of Romans 1-11 through which provoked Paul's outburst of praise. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by a vision of God. Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Hence, the indispensable place of Scripture in both public worship and private devotion. It is the Word of God which calls forth the worship of God. So the deeper we go into God's word, the higher we should be able to go up in our praise and adoration of him. He goes on, on the other hand, there should be no theology without doxology. There there is something, he says, fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship as it did Paul. Our place is on our faces before him in adoration. He says, as I believe Bishop Hanley Mool said at the end of the last century, we must beware equally of an undevotional theology and of an untheological devotion. Which, by the way, all of us are prone towards one of those two extremes, Undevotional theology, it's all a bunch of analytical head knowledge about God that doesn't affect our emotions at all. Or we're prone to an untheological devotion where we're just emoting all the time and it's really, you know, we're bouncing all over the place and it's zeal without knowledge and we don't have any theology underneath driving that devotion, that worship. Those are two extremes we need to avoid. We need to have theological devotion, theological devotion. And I hope, I pray, that that is your heart, your mind, your response as we conclude this first half or first doctrinal section of the book of Romans, that rather than just giving you a big head, it just makes you want to shout and sing. And unfortunately, Chris went home sick, and so we can't shout and sing right now. But we'll be back next week to do some more singing and some more shouting. Um, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing, comprehensive, crystal clear explanation of the gospel And yet, while Paul did his job as best he could under the inspiration of your spirit, there are still many questions left unanswered, so many things that we don't fully understand, we can't comprehend, and God, we know we'll never fully comprehend until we get to heaven. And even then, I think you will still be beyond us because we'll never be you. You will always be bowing before you and worshiping you because you are higher than us and greater than us. And so I pray, Lord, in the meantime, while we wait for that great day when we see you face to face and we can worship the lamb who was slain in our place, that we would live for your glory, your honor, that we would praise your unfathomable wisdom, we would praise your unaided work on our behalf in the gospel. And Lord, that uh, we would just live lives of great passion and devotion that's fueled by our knowledge of you through the scriptures. Lord, may no one leave here, having gone through these first 11 chapters, just checking that off their list. Okay, I know, I know those chapters better than I did before. But uh, without having it... Uh, cause them to just explode in, in worship and praise to you and, and live a life of, uh, of passionate exaltation of Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.